Welcome to Snow Day. James and I were, um, were intending to, uh, to do this uh, talk last week. And, um, of course, the snow had other ideas, so uh, we had to cool it off. Um, so uh, it's James and I this week. Of course, we've had an extra week to think about it now, so the sermon is double the length that it was. <laughs> so um, James hasn't, uh, hasn't spoken in the, this form, this auditorium before. So welcome, James. Thank you. Um, he's uh, my partner today, and uh, we're going to do this together. Um, we hope. Should be good. Um, James, you'll know because uh, um, he often takes, parts in the, takes part in the messages, but generally from the back row. Okay? So this morning, um, he's up the front. You other guys in the back row, you're going to have to take his place. Yeah. <laughs> Arlene is already up to it. Excellent. Um, James is a unique character. I've been getting to know him now for a for over a year in the community, and uh, I'm really looking forward to sharing with him this morning. This, uh, this will be good together. For those of you who don't know, uh, James um, is a, his day job, in fact, not just his day job, sometimes his night job, uh, is as a chaplain for Vitas Hospice. Um, he deals with um, people that have limited life expectations. Um, he cares for them. Um, typically people that have less than six months to live or for which there's no real treatment left. So uh, he has a wealth of experience. And he also has a uh, master of divinity, which makes him far more qualified to speak than I am. So, um, good. A paper on the wall. (laughs) Paper on the wall. Uh, Today we're continuing in our our message, uh, our, our series which was a three-week, a 12-week series, um, this is the third message, uh, that we've been calling Same Spirit, which, um, in which we're really examining how does the same spirit that enabled Jesus to live his life, to live as he lived, how does that same spirit empower us to live the same way? So we're looking at uh, Jesus' life not only um, from what he says and does, but what the Spirit does, um, and how he is empowered by the Spirit. So that's our, um, our start this morning. And our particular, let's call it feature of the Spirit this morning that we're going to talk about together is uh, gentleness. So gentleness um, is a, a mark of the Spirit, and one that I think uh, you will all... Uh, recognize in some way, but I thought we'd start by, uh, first of all, seeing um, what it is that uh, gentleness means to us. So let's start by considering gentleness a bit, and I'll ask you the question, so what comes to mind when you think of gentleness? Now, we dialogue together in our uh, gathering, so you're allowed to talk. Gentleness, what comes to mind? Babies. Babies. <laughs> so I heard another tenderness, thank you. Tenderness, restraint, right? Gentleness. Pete. 
Softness. Yes. Um, love. Okay, thank you. Yes. The wash cycle. No? Empathy, I heard. Yes. Mother's touch. Yes, gentleness. A lot of softness in that. We mentioned as part of the fruit of the Spirit in, uh, in Galatians 5. Uh, it's fruit of the Spirit. You recall, I, I wrote them down here so I won't forget. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is that what gentleness means when you hear it in that list of the fruit of the Spirit? Do you have a different idea in your mind when you think of gentleness in that context? Probably you do. I looked up the Greek word, um, which I brought James to pronounce. What's the Greek word, James? Parutis. Parutis. Um, then I looked up the definition. It didn't help me much. It said, um, mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit, and meekness. Meekness is another one of those words that you think, huh. <laughs> um, meekness um, toward God. Uh, disposition of spirit in, we ex- in which we accept his dealings um, with us as good and therefore without uh, disputing or resisting. So lack of resistance because of God. So um, I couldn't find a good definition, so I made one up. Um, here you go. So this is my definition of, of uh, gentleness. And... Um, before I read it, I'll tell you that it comes with, uh, with no accreditation from anyone. So um, the good news is that uh, as we go through this morning, you get to determine whether you think this is right or wrong. Um, that's, uh, that's what we get to do together. That's part of the Spirit's work in discernment as well. Um, what, what was coming to my heart was gentleness is resting in the presence and purpose of God and relating to others from that assurance. Gentleness is resting in the presence and the purpose of God and relating to others from that assurance. So, we're going to go through a story this morning, and the story is a gospel story that you'll know very well, I think. And as we go through that, we're going to keep coming back to this question of gentleness, and uh, you'll get to decide, is this the right direction or not? You have two gentlemen this morning. Um, Gentlemen. um, That means lots of things too, doesn't it? But really a gentleman for me is someone who accepts and expects the moving of God in the life and circumstances of those around him. So he doesn't force his own agenda. He is looking for God's agenda. And uh, that marks gentleness or a gentleman in that context. So let's go through our favorite story, and James is going to help us with it. And We're going to look at gentleness as we go through, but also we're going to pick out other works of the Spirit, and there are quite a few of them as we go through this passage. So, Well, as Pete said, uh, our story is familiar. It comes from John 4. If you want to use the Bible under the seat in front of you, it's page 741. And it's worth repeating that if you're in need of a Bible, 
that you can take that one home with you. Let's read our story, at least the first section. We won't read all the sections, but let's read it together. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned this, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. And we had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. John tells us the story of an ordinary place near a small village, an apparently chance encounter as they were on the way from one Jewish area to another. Jesus and his disciples had gotten an early start that day and had been on the road all morning. And travel in those days was a little tougher than it is now. So... We might not be impressed by the number of miles they went, but they were hot, tired, dusty, and footsore, ready for a break. Now back in Judea, Jesus' ministry had been really taking off, but he was beginning to experience the downside of success. People were experiencing God's presence. Many were making commitments to change their lives. And all of this sounds good, but the pollsters and counters were beginning to notice that Jesus, or at least his disciples, were baptizing more than John. Remember, John was the guy who pretty much invented baptisms and was famous for them, so he was outshining the leader. So Jesus was shaking up the religious world, and there are times that fame can take the spotlight away from God. So before things got entirely out of hand, Jesus and his group headed off for Galilee. He wasn't interested in fame. He wasn't interested in competing with or squabbling with the other religious leaders. Jesus followed God's spirit with a humble and gentle heart. Between Judea and Galilee, there's this place called Samaria. So when they pulled over for a stop, it was there in Samaria. Jesus was the senior pastor, so it was the other guys who had to go in town to pick up lunch. <laughs> so he sat down by the well and rested. The well was probably a pretty good landmark, a place that people knew and, and could meet, and so not a bad idea. Now let's take time out for a cross-cultural lesson on Samaritans. This could be helpful if you ever find yourself in first century Samaria. (laughs) Samaritans were ethnically inferior. They were, as the woman says later, descendants of Jacob, so they were children of Israel. But they were mixed in with the blood of other peoples that uh, the Assyrians brought in six, seven centuries before. 
They were religiously inferior in that they, they didn't really accept the teaching of the prophets, only the books of Moses they held to be scripture. And plus, they weren't much on going down to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. In fact, they even had a temple right near this well. Now, a few generations before, the Jews had destroyed it because they said you had to worship in Jerusalem. And maybe, from where Jesus was sitting, the ruins of that temple were still visible. Samaritans also had a history of trouble. And from the Jewish perspective, they were the troublemakers. When uh, Nehemiah brought the people back and rebuilt the walls, they were the ones saying, no, 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 we don't want walls for Jerusalem. When the Jews rebelled against the, uh, the Greeks, the followers of Alexander the Great, the Samaritans actually helped out the Greeks. So these were not friendly people, if you're Jews, and so you, you wanted to be careful around them. And finally, there was this idea that dealing with Samaritans kind of wasn't a good thing for Jews to do, and, and it maybe would make you suspect. In fact, one ancient writer actually said that talking with Samaritan is, is like eating pork. <laughs> so the lesson is that self-respecting Jews steer clear of Samaritans. But unfortunately... Samaria is right on the road. It was the natural way to go from Judea to Galilee. So it's sort of like going from Cherry Hill or Marlton into Center City. The road takes you through Camden. Now there's other choices if you don't mind taking another bridge, but when you're on foot, going out of your way is hard work. And so people were reluctant to do that sort of thing. But just remember, when you're in Samaria, you're on foreign soil, so keep your guard up. Okay, time in. Now this, as I said, it was a public place and everyone knew where it was. And pretty much from every household, someone would go down every day. Usually a woman or perhaps a girl. So first thing in the morning, it was a busy, busy place. There was a long line of people drawing water. But once the sun gets up high and it's hot, well, then there's no waiting. So apparently Jesus had the place to himself, at least once the disciples left to go into town. Until a woman showed up with a water jar on her head. The conversation starts out simply enough, but it wasn't really an encounter that had to happen. People often occupy the same place without interacting, don't we? Elevators, busy street, and what's more crowded than a freeway? So if Jesus doesn't speak, nothing happens, and we don't have a story. There was every reason to believe that Jesus would keep to himself. First, this woman was a Samaritan, and we just talked about Samaritans. Second, this woman was a woman. And in a um, in-equal opportunity world, men didn't talk to women. And finally, we'll find out in a few verses that this woman may have been one of those women. 
the sort that a respectable fellow wouldn't speak to anyway. So at this point, we can just say that she was a nobody among nobodies. Someone that a self-respecting religious leader wouldn't even give eye contact with. But with the eyes of, spirit, of the Spirit, Jesus sees someone. Someone whom God loves. Someone thirsty for God's presence. So he speaks. Well, given our modern society, we might look down our nose at those silly first century folk and their prejudices against foreigners. But before we do, we might ask who it is that we love to hate. Or maybe more charitably, who is it that we struggle to love? Do you think there might be Samaritans in our own closets? Wouldn't necessarily be a question of race or religion or people group, but it could be. Americans tend to value people according to their education, their wealth, their influence, their status. And conversely, we're inclined to devalue people whose lives are touched by violence, addiction, or crime. Is it possible that we in Cultivate are ever tempted to go along? Loving as the Spirit calls us means letting go of the idea that I'm better than this one or that one. I too need God's radical grace. My value doesn't come from anything I've done, but because God loves me. Humility and love bring gentleness, and gentleness overcomes barriers. The, word, the world underlines those differences, but the Spirit brings people together. So when you and I learn to follow the Spirit, that we'll have gentleness to share. And we can deal gently with those people that we struggle to love. I said earlier this seemed to be a chance encounter, but are there really any coincidences? Do you know the expression divine appointment? An encounter that God seems to have planned that changes a life. At the risk of revealing someone else's secrets, I think Pete has a story that could include a divine appointment. John doesn't tell us whether this is a divine appointment. He doesn't say a lot about the story. There's some loose ends here. We don't know whether they stopped on the road and got directions. We don't know if they had heard about this woman or other women. He doesn't even say that the Spirit gives guidance. He leaves that for the reader through the eyes of faith to see the Spirit at work. So this is a divine appointment, not because God planned it from the foundation of the universe, but rather because God's spirit was at work in it. And because of this encounter, a woman and a community and a whole world of readers ever since experience God's presence. 
The conversation starts pretty simply. Would you get me a drink? And perhaps because of Jesus' gentleness, authenticity, or just genuine regard, she isn't offended by this breach of protocol. She seems to have more bewilderment than scorn or fear. Why aren't you following the rules? Aren't you supposed to dislike me? Am I not supposed to hate you? What's going on here? Crossing people's expectations can sometimes get you in hot water. But it sometimes helps lower people's barriers and defenses. For Jesus, it goes well and there's a meaningful conversation. And in this, I see the Spirit of God at work preparing the woman and that as Jesus follows the Spirit's lead, she understands that he wants what's best for her. A work of the Spirit. One of the reasons I like the uh, Cultivate Garden, which we have out the back here, is it gives the opportunity for divine appointments. I'm sure some of you have had that experience where you just feel it's a good idea, um, a need to go and uh, be out there, and there's somebody there who it turns out wants to talk or needs to talk. So it's been a joy for me just in the garden. I can't wait for spring so that we can get to do that again. And, and uh, it's, it's an opportunity to be with people and to see what God wants in, in those relationships and in those discussions. And I think God does call us to those, and he arranges those. Um, and uh, that's what he was doing with, uh, uh, with this woman. She came to the world at the time Jesus was there, and God had arranged that. And um, the woman, uh, the conversation had progressed, and the woman had said, um, uh, how can you ask me for a drink? Well, she replied, how can you ask me for a drink? And the conversation goes on in a most peculiar manner. You'd think that uh, Jesus might reply, well, I know you're a Samaritan, but I try not to discriminate or something like that. Um, but, of course, we're talking about the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. And uh, this isn't an ordinary conversation. This isn't something that is uh, just coming out of, of a mind, I believe. It's coming out of the moving of God. So Jesus answers her in the following way. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's way out of left field, isn't it? <laughs> um, I guess that's a baseball term, but it's way out of left field. Um, so at this point, it feels like God is stepping into this woman's life and both the good of it and the painful of it, and uh, he's bringing her to a different place. Later in his ministry, um, Jesus tells his disciples that they, they shouldn't worry about what they're going to say because the Holy Spirit would teach them what to say. In, uh, in Luke, it says, um, uh, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And the context there is not exactly the same, but I think it's what's happening here. This is a work of the Spirit, and that's um, 
the, the key topic of our series together is to try and unpack those works of the Spirit and for us to understand how the Spirit is working in our lives and can work in our lives and for us to be expectant of that work in our lives. So here he is. He is giving, I believe, Jesus the words to say in this case and leading this conversation into an area that uh, you might not have expected. Maybe you've experienced that before, that uh, God will give you the words to say um, or put something into your mind that seems unusual (laughs) but nevertheless turns out to be what the person needed to hear. So um, the exchanges raged to a different level. They were talking about water. Water, water. So I'm trying to remember what accent I'm speaking now. What? <laughs> water, water. And now we're talking about living water. Is that right? No, it's not even close. All right. So she responds. Uh, she responds without much understanding. She says this. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and, did, and also did his sons and his flocks and herds? So some might have backed off. She might have backed off. She might have thought this conversation is getting a bit tricky. Um, I'll stop. But uh, no, she's actually drawn in. And I think a comment really says... Really? You're going to give me living water and you don't even have a bucket? I mean, pull the other leg, you know? (laughs) How is he going to do this? Because uh, he's the one asking her for water because he hasn't anything to put into the well. So the conversation goes on. Jesus, uh, led by the Spirit, answers, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and won't have to keep coming here to draw water. So I don't think the woman has actually understood understood what Jesus is saying, but the gospel is right here. Um, From Jesus asking for a drink, now she is asking him, for the water that wells up to eternal life. And it's the same spirit. We keep talking about it. The spirit did this. So he's working through Jesus to speak the gospel to her and to speak the gospel to her in personal and relevant and engaging ways. Because she's engaged. She's not backing off. She's worn uh, from going back and forth for water, I suppose. And uh, she's excited about where this conversation is going, it feels like. So the Spirit is doing something here which is giving Jesus the words to say, but beyond that is presenting the gospel, the good news, in a personal and relevant way to the woman. Yeah? So... Those words are being provided to bring her from where she is to where God needs her to be by the Spirit. (coughs) Excuse me. 
But, you know, the work of the Spirit here has hardly started, so uh, you know the story probably, so let's go on. Um, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. What just happened there? <laughs> so a Samaritan woman that Jesus has never met, and they're talking around the well, and they're talking about living water, and now he tells her something that he cannot know. Can he? Well, before we go there, let's talk about gentleness a bit more. Jesus has now revealed a fact that she hoped was her secret, at least in this conversation. Potentially, it's a condemning fact. You've had five husbands and you started on your sixth. But is there any condemnation? Is there any coercion? Is there any threat? Is there any judgment? Is there any suggestion that Jesus is going to use what he somehow knows in a negative way? I see none. I see gentleness is still a mark of the conversation. But it's interesting to me because he still chose to say this. He could have said nothing. So gentleness is not about being soft, that we talked about that earlier. It's not saying nothing. It's not being soft or superficial. He does talk about her secret, but he doesn't do it in a way that is in any way condemning. The spirit takes the conversation there and she continues to engage because she sees the love in the encounter. He was compelling, not condemning. So how does Jesus know this secret? Let's go back to that. Well, the passage doesn't tell us. Um, you might say, well, Jesus is God, isn't he? So that's, he must just know it because he's God. Well, I don't think so. I think, as we talked about two weeks ago, that Jesus isn't using his godliness in his human form. He's empowered by the Spirit. He's listening to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is telling him this. Our series that we're going through... Uh, that we're calling the same spirit, is following the various descriptions of the fruit of the spirit. Um, and we don't have a, a section on the gifts of the spirit. Perhaps we should, but it would have been a long, long list if we'd have gone there as well. Um, and we don't often talk about the gifts of the spirit, but I think we have one right here. So in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and, and verse 8, it says, To one there is given through the spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same spirit, or other passages will call it a word of knowledge. And I think that's what's happening here. For me, a word of knowledge is given by the spirit, and that's how Jesus knows this personal fact about this uh, woman. So a word of knowledge is really a God-given revelation um, 
can be about another person or another event, may be spoken, may be provided to be spoken to that person. Some of you may have experienced that, or it may have been provided for uh, your guidance in praying or for helping someone. And it's not, it's not from human reason. So we all have common sense, don't we? Some more than others. In varying extents. This is not common sense. This is God speaking. This is a God revelation to a person, a word of knowledge. And it's kind of scary, isn't it? That God could tell something to somebody about you that you thought no one else knew. It's it's scary. I think you're right. It is scary. Um, but God isn't revealing that knowledge to embarrass you or undermine you. He's revealing that knowledge because he is your heavenly father and because he cares for you, and because he loves you. And you know that because you know what he's done. He went to the cross for you. He's not looking to, to mess with you. He's looking to help you. And this really blows open the discussion with, uh, with the woman. And, you know, in, in my experience, not just myself, but uh, in, in others that I've been with, a word of knowledge might not even come in words. So sometimes perhaps a scene playing out in your mind, a picture. Um, sometimes in other ways. Um, God can communicate in many ways, and one of the things that we have to do as part of learning to walk in the Spirit is to learn to listen to Him and to learn to be those that are listening and attentive to the Spirit in our lives. To be expectant as well. To not think that this never happens. It doesn't happen to us every day, but it can happen. So we need to be expectant that the Spirit is going to work in our lives and touch us and reveal things to us that may be beyond what we could reasonably have known. But he can do that. He can do that. I've certainly seen uh, this uh, or had this kind of experience when praying for someone, when something jumps into your mind that seems to be way out in left field. But but then speaking it out and discovering that it meant something very important to that person. So that's a a skill. Is it a skill? I don't know. Uh, That's something that we have to cultivate together as uh, a people of God, is how to listen to the Spirit and how to hear Him speaking to us and to be able to discern that. And sometimes that requires courage too, because if you hear something um, that is like a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom, which doesn't make full sense to you, you kind of have to have the courage to speak it out to somebody else and see if the Spirit is telling them something similar, or if they witness that that is coming from the Holy Spirit. So it, it, uh, it, it takes some courage, but, but we can do that together. I think we, we need to do that more. I have a story I want to share with you, which some of you have heard before, I know. Um, it happened a long time ago as well, but 
I wanted to share it because it was formative for me in opening my eyes to the working of the Spirit. Um, I was on a Christian camp uh, a long time ago as a student. Excuse me. Um, with many other peers that were students. Um, and we were in this local community, and some of the locals knew that we were about and wanted, though it wasn't planned, to persuade us to come and lead some discussion groups um, in homes close by. And I was asked to lead one of those groups, and we had very little time to prepare, so we made a few notes, um, got ready to dive in, see what would happen. Um, while I was making a few notes... Um, something quite strange happened uh, to me. The question, why do you believe the Bible, came into my head very, very clearly. And in itself, it, so what? But then also came into my mind five very structured answers to that question. And I don't remember what they were now because they're gone. But they were there at the time. There were five. Um, Like bullet points, bang, and I thought, wow, that's good. And I just wandered off and thought, well, I'll carry on preparing now. And so I did, so preparing for the uh, group. When we arrived at the house in the evening, um, we had a a great host uh, and a room full of people. And, of course, we knew none of them, so it was uh, was an interesting time. There were several of us. We had a great discussion. Uh, The gospel came out clearly. There was a lot of interest. Um, we, it, was, it was a blessed time. When the discussion was over, the host came up to me. He thanked me for the evening. And he said, can I ask you one question? Guess what the question was? Why do you believe the Bible? So I was able to tell him what had been kind of placed in my mind. I don't know how else to describe it. It wasn't me. I hadn't prepared that. It had just been placed there. And I'd never seen that guy before, and I've never seen him since. But I know that God was moving in his life. Because God did that. God arranged that. And God gave that information for him for that particular point in time. So maybe it was a divine appointment. I don't know, a word of knowledge. But it demonstrated to me clearly that the Holy Spirit is at work in personal and specific ways in and around us. And we need to open ourselves up to that more and more. So let's go on with the story. James is going to continue. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. For many people, there's something acutely uncomfortable about having an ordinary conversation with someone who seems ordinary enough, but then turns out to be a minister of God. Oops. Oh, I wish I hadn't used those bad words. I'm going to have to be more careful next time. I'm not sure why it's um, so hard to face a religious leader without putting up a false front. Maybe people expect clergy to be condemning. Or maybe there's some sense of God's presence that makes us reluctant to show our true selves with all the warts and blemishes and things we're not proud of. Well, for this woman, it's even worse because she had up a false front and Jesus blew away the smokescreen. 
I suppose it's a miracle that she stayed around at all. But when Jesus speaks gently, almost with a wink, she hears love rather than judgment in what he says. How often can people say that about your conversations or mine? I certainly wish it were more often. However, if we see with the Spirit's eyes, if we value people the way the Spirit does, if we love people the way the Spirit loves, then it's possible. I talk with people most every day and most of those days. Sometimes I have the joy of experiencing God's grace in the life of someone with whom I'm standing. So I too have a story. I had occasion to listen to a woman who was crushed by guilt following the death of someone important. Well, guilt feelings are relatively common following a loss. And sometimes there's not much guilt behind it. But sometimes we really are guilty. And so this woman related, having said a lot of harsh things, may be made sharper by the pain of grieving, um, to others in the family. And the uproar was so severe that she didn't even go to the funeral. She felt really guilty about that as well. Once I suggested that God could forgive her if she asked, she began to cry very freely. Even though she had a history of faith, somehow that came to her as a surprise. And after forgiveness brought her that release from guilt, she could grieve naturally and begin to heal. Well, for our woman, instead of running away from Jesus, she does the next best thing. She asks, asks him to solve a religious crisis or quarrel that had been around for centuries. It's really doubly clever because she invites him to tell her that the Samaritans are wrong, and then she can walk off in a huff. I can tell you firsthand that this is really very plausible. When I introduce myself as a chaplain or, or someone reads my name tag and, oh, you're a chaplain. So which church is it that does baptisms the right way? <laughs> what do you think about? And then it's the latest clergy scandal or, or strange religious pronouncement. Or how do you interpret this part of Revelation where? Invariably, this distracting question doesn't have an answer that's less than a dissertation. So the woman's question is as good as any. Whichever way Jesus answers, she can keep him safely at a distance. Well, Jesus doesn't play her game. But he does answer with gentleness and patience and some kindness. Don't worry about who's right. Real worship isn't a question of where. It's a question of who, who God is. Jews may have a head start, but in the end, those who worship with their true selves, those are the ones who worship rightly.
those are the ones who find grace. Well, the woman just doesn't know how to answer because she had Jesus boxed in and somehow he got out because she didn't, he didn't answer the way she was expecting. So maybe hiding in the platitudes, she says, oh, I guess we know when the Messiah gets here. Isn't there a hymn, something like that? We'll know better, we'll understand better by and by. Well, his answer goes beyond any of the amazing things he said before. If he had shocked her previously, he floored her with this. He's here right in front of you, the Messiah. A life-changing moment of grace. So with that joy and excitement that comes from actually encountering the Lord, she runs back to the village. Her feet barely touch the ground. She completely forgets that she's a nobody. And maybe the same people she's been avoiding previously, she now seeks out to tell them what's happened. Pays no attention to shame or everything that she did. I imagine that there were some people who couldn't believe their ears. Maybe more than a few. But once she tells the story, the very least they decide we better go see about this and decide for ourselves. Because she meets, really meets Jesus. She's now a somebody, a child of God. Because she comes to salvation, others are willing to meet Jesus too. By the way, did I mention that the disciples happened by at this very moment of joy? That the moment of grace, they're witnesses, they're onlookers. A miracle of divine power. And they celebrate like everyone else, like the angels in heaven. Oh wait, they don't. Somehow they're right there and they miss the entire event. All they see is a nobody. How could this happen? The best thing you can say about the disciples is they keep their mouth shut and don't interrupt. <laughs> I suspect that I'm much more often like the disciples than I am like Jesus. Everyday concerns, worries, or even prejudices squeeze out the spirit from my attention. And so I don't see what the Spirit sees. I don't see with the Spirit's eyes. Would I really be willing to see someone as valueless that God sees as priceless? Well, fortunately God keeps working with the disciples, the ones who were there at the well and the ones here at Cultivate. It takes time. Disciples can be pretty hard-headed but with the Spirit's help, Jesus' first disciples eventually become experts at bringing people to God's presence. The Spirit is not done with you or with me either. Well, once the people from the town meet Jesus, they tell the woman, you were right. But we had to see it for ourselves. 
However, John is very clear to say it was the woman's witness and her experience that starts them on the road to believe. They even talk Jesus to stay a few days. Don't let the Jews know about that. (laughs) Maybe even more people from this village came to faith. Jesus talked to one woman, rejecting the standards, the unwritten rules, the boundaries. He valued her maybe when no one else did, not even herself. He spoke the good news in a way that she could hear and respond. As a result, a whole town was saved. So we started with Jesus asking a woman for a drink at the well, and now we have the whole town saved. So a question I, I, I want to ask here, and it's um, I don't know how we can possibly presume to understand what God is up to, but what is the Spirit doing here? Was this about the woman or the town? And I guess I come to the conclusion that it was probably about the town, or both. Maybe both is a better answer. Um, so a very simple question has led to um, an amazing result. What is the Spirit doing? So I, I think to myself, well, okay, so my job is to reach the town. How am I going to do this? I'm going to sit at the well and wait for a woman to come. No. No, no, we have to make a plan. Um, I'm a project manager by, uh, by trade, so I, we're going to make a plan. It's probably got to be um, written out with lots of Gantt charts as to um, what has to come first. And we have milestones to reach at certain stages. Um, and um, no, that, that's not what happens here. Um, who would make the plan... Um, wait for the woman to come to the well and ask her for a drink. I talk about that because for me, that's a lesson about the way that the spirit works. And it's a real tough lesson. Building, building a house and building the kingdom of God are not the same. They do not happen the same way. So, We can make very great plans, and they can have lots of steps in them, and we can try to walk through that plan and and hope that that's going where God wants. But, and we do that in all sincerity, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but what does God do? God takes an encounter which is ordinary, and he turns it into something that saves the town. So that's the God we serve, and that's the work of the Spirit that we have to be open to. That's what we have to listen for, is what is God doing, and what's his plan, and how is he going to make that happen? Because he has a way, almost in spite of us, doesn't it seem sometimes? So our role is to listen and to listen with expectancy because the same spirit that empowered Jesus is at work in us. 
I know for me, and, and uh, a confession is I'm always so busy. I always feel busy. I always feel like there's too many things that haven't been done yet that have to be done in the next hour. So I find it really hard to listen to the still, small voice. I'm sure there are many of you like that because our, our, there's so much noise in our lives. Um, you know, we can't drive along in the car without music playing. Just the thought of listening to our own thoughts is... Uh, there's so much noise around. And we need space, don't we, to listen to God, to listen to the Holy Spirit and to experience him working in our lives. We need to allow for divine appointments to happen. We need to allow for the Spirit to direct our conversations. We need, when we're talking with somebody, to be asking the Spirit, to be asking God, what do you want me to understand about this person? How do you want me to help them? What do you want me to say? That's, that's something we should be doing because we need to be open to him and to him working through us. I'm trying to learn, and I, my family will attest that I'm still not good at it, but I'm trying to learn that interruptions are opportunities. Because for me, I'm a very focused person. I'm going there, and an interruption is stopping me from getting there. But that's not the way it works with God. So a, a lesson for me is interruptions are opportunities, especially if you're listening to the Spirit of God. In the uh, first letter of Peter, there's a verse that we often quote um, related to giving uh, reason for the hope. But here's what it says. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Right? Gentleness and respect. So we're back to that point. Jesus did that through the Spirit and the woman in the town received the hope, and he did it with gentleness. Without that, I think she would have fled. And that gentleness was a very special trust in what God was doing. It wasn't soft, it wasn't weak, but it enthused love. I think it's easy when uh, people threaten the um, when we're sharing about our faith or we feel our faith is threatened in some way or we feel we have to give an account that we try to force our agenda but because somehow we feel threatened. But in gentleness, we don't need to do that because we expect and accept the moving of God in the life and the circumstances of those that we are sharing with. So I'll go back to my definition, definition of gentleness again because for me, gentleness is the quality that respects the purpose of God over the purpose of man and acts accordingly, walking in the Spirit. Gentleness is resting in the presence and the purpose of God and relating to others from that assurance. So that's our message this morning. Let's allow God through the Spirit to work that in us and to use us. As he used Jesus in the life of the woman and the town, let's ask him for divine appointments for the grace to recognize them. Let's trust him for the words to speak, the message of salvation. And let's be expectant for him to move among us as his Holy Spirit will. Because the working of God is precious 
absolutely precious. And we need to see it and take hold of it wherever we see it and respond. James, would you like to pray? Father, we ask that you would remake our hearts, be sensitive to the work of the Spirit, to see with the Spirit's eyes, to listen to the Spirit's words, and to follow where the Spirit leads. We lift this prayer in your name. Amen.